Good morning and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. On Jew in the City, we do a lot of breaking down of stereotypes of Orthodox Jews um, in general. Uh, we try to highlight them through our different media channels. We talk about media bias against Orthodox Jews and bias in general. And of course, we track anti-Semitic attacks because um, it's a pretty clear uh, you know, um, connection between constantly being othered and constantly being shown in a negative way and rarely getting to be seen as whole and human, and then the door being opened up to, uh, for hatred, um, Jew on Jew hatred in some cases, sadly, and of course, uh, you know, inciting anti-Semitism. And the guest that we have on today really can talk about a lot of these different issues. He himself breaks down stereotypes and he's really on the front lines, literally when it comes to violence on the streets because he is a police officer, an Orthodox Jew who's a police officer. In fact, the highest ranking Orthodox Jewish police officer to publicly wear a yarmulke in the NYPD. His name is um, Inspector Richie Taylor um, and I'm so delighted to invite him onto our show today. So uh, Inspector Taylor, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Thank you so much, Allison. It's great to be here. So um, I guess if you could, um, I know that you had a recent promotion, which was kind of what we saw in the news and um, why we thought this was a good time to talk to you. Um, for those of us that do not know the different rankings or levels in, um, you know, kind of how the police hierarchy, can you walk us through just sort of the basics and then we'll get into your backstory? Absolutely. So the police department, the rank structure, it starts at police officer, it's police officer and actually detectives on the same level because they're both non-supervisors. Police officers more respond to emergencies and calls for help. Detectives, they do the same thing, but they also uh, investigate crime. They may also be assigned to our Community Affairs Bureau. They may also be assigned to our Emergency Service Unit, do uh, serious uh, high-risk rescues. Uh, and detectives also assigned to our Intelligence Bureau and Counterterrorism Bureau. So those are the two ranks that are non-supervisory. And then up the chain of command is uh, sergeant, then lieutenant, then captain, then deputy inspector, and then the rank that I hold, which is inspector, and then above inspector are the ranks of chief, and then of course ultimately is the police commissioner. Oh, well, so like really two from the top. See, I've watched some Law and Order SVU, but I was not always so clear on the different levels. So um, I appreciate the uh, the cheat sheet now. And I think for uh, lots of our listeners, that's helpful too. So that's really, Kanina Hara, that's very impressive. Um, yes. And how many how many people are at your level in the NYPD? Uh, it's about, uh, it's about 90 inspectors mm -hmm. at my level. And with Law and Order, mm -hmm. if you, order, you think a detective could boss around the chief, what they get away with in Hollywood is unbelievable. Oh, but believe yeah. me, I've made a career out of uh, being uh, irate at what they get away with in Hollywood. Um, yeah. Okay, today we can we can fight against uh, police depictions and Orthodox Jewish depictions. So, um, so before we talk about what that's like to be an Orthodox Jewish police officer, um, let's go back to your past. Um, where did you grow up? What was your Jewish background growing up? I grew up in Brooklyn, in Manhattan Beach. Uh, I went to public school uh, in the middle of fifth grade. I uh, asked my mother to put me into a more of a yeshiva, which he did, yeshiva of Manhattan Beach. I had some friends who were religious, um, just people in the community that I, uh, that I spoke to a lot and played with. And I saw that, uh, you know, they wore yarmulke, they wore tzitzis. And our family, ourselves, we were more traditional. Uh, we kept Passover, we kept the major holidays, went to Shulan, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, even Shabbos. Uh, with going to shul, but it wasn't really 
you know, orthodox. It was more of a traditional, maybe conservative type of uh, family setting, which was a great upbringing. But I figured that if you're if you're already doing it, like you know, it's it's something that yes, again, you have to love it. It has to be in your heart. But uh, I wanted to just know more about it. And my mother put me into yeshiva, and from there I started to become more religious uh, with Shabbos with kosher. And as I got older, I got married at 20 years old. I met her, a girl that's amazing. I couldn't do anything that I do without her. Mary is an amazing partner I have. Uh, we have five great kids, thank God, that um, she's able to, to able to really be here for me and for the family. And she was always orthodox. So from, you know, from there, going to college, marrying her, and go, then going to the police department, I, um, I saw that there was a tremendous amount of good that we could bring to the table. Uh, not just for the Jewish community, but for all communities. So if we bring sensitivity, you know, it's hard to um, it's hard to really put your uh, your finger on the pulse unless you really understand things even from the inside. And um, just the partnerships with with people, the reputation that you have, the respect that you gain. Um, you could wear a yarmulke, you could wear any religious article, but you have to have it inside you that you want to help and you want to be there for for others. Beautiful. Sorry. I love it. Fired. And so, um, you know, I think that some people have a complaint that the box is kind of small in terms of career uh, for a lot of Orthodox Jews, accountant, doctor, lawyer, um, police officer is definitely out of the box. So um, when, where, why, how did this line of work, you know, come to your mind? Well, ever since I was, I was in yeshiva, ever since I was about 14 years old, even younger than 13, I always loved uh, just the idea of public service. I used to run around with a lot of friends of mine who are Hatzalah members of you know, the Volunteer Ambulance Service, uh, services mostly of the Jewish community. It's the largest Volunteer Ambulance Service in the United States. I had a lot of friends in Hatzalah where I saw that they would leave their beds at three, four in the morning on a freezing night. It could be zero degrees outside and they're in a warm bed sleeping and they're on call that their home phone rings, which it usually does. They'll jump out of bed into the frigid cold, into their frigid car to go to a stranger's home to help someone. And it just meant something so much to me. It was so much, so much greater than what you see. And I took a pull to that. I took a, a tremendous liking to that. And from there, from Hatzalah, I went to, I saw the police department and for some reason I was pulled to the police department. And at 15 years old, I became a police explorer. The NYPD still has the program to this day where young people can come in they become a police explorer. It's exploring law enforcement. And you get to hmm. see, it's, a, it's an incredible program. I encourage anyone who has someone 15, even younger, or a little older that wants to explore law enforcement to see what it's about. You truly, you have more than just a front row seat, but you get a backstage pass into policing, into public service, into community relations, into how to keep people safe. And, and just as important, how to make sure people feel safe. And I say, I say that a lot because from the top, from the mayor to the police commissioner, that's the tone that's set, that people have to feel safe. And that's the police department's job. You know, Chief Madry, Chief of Community Affairs, a great leader of mine, always makes sure that police officers are deployed professionally and, and intelligently. And seeing from the inside at a young age, getting, uh, getting to know some of the police leaders there, seeing their care on how much they love what they do. No one acts as if they were working. They act like they were just doing the job they would love to do anyway. And getting a sense of public service brought me to the, to the police precinct there in Manhattan Beach, Sheepside Bay, where I grew up, Midwood. 
And then going from there, I actually became an auxiliary police officer. And then I became a regular police officer in 2005. I was assigned to Brooklyn for most of my career. And I just saw the opportunities that you have, whether it's, again, it's for the Jewish community, whether it's for the Muslim community, the Catholic community, whether it's for not-for-profits, whether it's at a large event, a small event, just having the ability to have a personal touch to any situation that you can really make an impact. And that's the biggest thing a police officer can do is make an impact of a positive nature. And I think that not many people's profession allows them to make the impact on such a scale that a police officer could do. Beautiful. You know, we see a lot um, depicted in media, um, awful values coming out of orthodoxy, um, xenophobia, racism, uh, sexism. These are things that we, and it's not to say that these things don't exist in the community. Obviously we have, you know, people that um, use sources, twist Jewish sources to, you know, comport into their um, sort of bad view. But, um, you know, it seems to me that you have this sort of lifelong um, value of service to others and sort of helping the community, helping people even beyond your, you know, sort of dialed almost your, you know, sort of uh, the small box of your Jewish world or your family. Um, how would you say your Jewish values and Jewish education impacted your desire to serve? I'd say greatly. I would say from a young age, from the rabbis who I was very fortunate to have, they spoke about helping someone else. We learned about Kuach Nefesh. Kuach Nefesh is a very powerful concept in the Jewish religion. It means, it means going out. And truly, if you just consider this for a moment, it means going against, we know laws of, of Shabbos, that you can't use electricity, you can't drive a car, you can't talk on a cell phone. But to save a life, which is Kuach Nefesh, to save a life is considered to be saving the entire world. And if we just pause for a moment to think of that concept, if you think about it, how many people look at a child, a spouse, as their entire world? You can truly save someone's entire world. And the concept that we learn in the Jewish religion and Yiddishkeit is truly that saving one life is the equivalent of saving the entire world. We'll never understand the impact that we have on someone when we save a life of a, of a loved one, and how much more so we save the life of someone who actually was near death or even perhaps clinically dead in cardiac arrest. And that's why the Jewish religion not only allows someone to go in a car on Shabbos or talk on the phone on Shabbos, but if you're trained and qualified to do it, you have an obligation to do so. You can't say, well, I don't want to drive in the car on Shabbos and save someone. You have to do it. Of course, if you're qualified and you get the phone call, you have an obligation to save a life no matter what the situation is. And that is something that the Jewish religion presses upon very, very deeply. And it's not just a Jewish life, but it's any life. And it's, it's a very, very powerful concept that I don't think many people learn about. But I know Hatzalah, the Valentine's you know, service I mentioned, they go with that constantly. If you look at their headquarters on a Shabbos or even Yom Kippur, which is considered the holiest day in the Jewish calendar, on Yom Kippur itself, the Hatzalah call volume comes in with astronomical numbers because people are elderly, they're fasting all day, they're fainting, they have serious medical issues with fasting. And Hatzalah is out there with a force just constantly going on their, in their cars to hospitals, to synagogues, to help people. And it's not just on a, you know, a basic level, it's on such an advanced level that you just see that. And how do you not get inspired? What, uh, what person has it where they, you know, they just so selflessly give to, to strangers? It's just something that is awe-inspiring, inspired me. 
So it's a great segue now to my next question, which is how does your uh, observance um, interact with your job? Um, so you kind of touched on this a little bit that um, you have, uh, you know, not only a permission, but a duty to serve and to save lives on Shabbos. So um, do you have Shabbos call? Like how, how does your schedule between Shabbos and holidays work out with uh, your, you know, uh, career responsibilities? So me personally, so I carry uh, a phone on Shabbos. Uh, actually, we I just this past Shabbos itself, uh, I was on the phone in regards to the hostage situation in Texas. Uh, I got phone calls from leaders of the Shomrim organizations, like about the volunteer community patrols, who um, who can mobilize people and get the word out that there's something going on at the very early stage of the hostage situation. We didn't know exactly what was going on. Was there a terrorist cell component to this? Was there a nexus to New York City? Of course, New York City is the number one terrorist target that we believe, of course, in the United States, not the world. And you can never be sure if an incident is isolated or if there are many components to it. Like we saw on 9-11, it wasn't one plane, you know, it was four. And we know they sent terrorist cell in the, net, in, the, in the network. So we wanted to secure our synagogues. We wanted to secure all houses of worship. So it's getting the word out to the Sherman coordinators, the neighborhood, you know, watch supervisors that we have a situation in Texas. Let your person know, you know, be vigilant, be extra vigilant. Thank God it was known that it was just this one person uh, without a connection to New York City. But that's just one example. I give that example now because of just a few days ago on Chavez. But I carry my phone. I'll get calls from Hatsala. I'll get calls because of a missing child, a missing elderly patient walks out walks uh out of synagogue uh and i'll i'll deal with uh i'll deal with things a lot on shabbos on the jewish holidays um there's no uh there's no shortage unfortunately of uh of the amount of crisis that we that we handle but with teamwork again like i mentioned the organizations that we work with with the the chiefs and the commissioner in the police department the mayor himself who's personally involved we're able to get the job done thankfully thank god we get the job done um, that's amazing. Is there anything else that I know that, you know, uh, police business might be private. Is there anything else you can share with us in terms of like what was going on? If you get that call, then, you know, there's just um, Shomrim, which are people sort of within the Jewish community um, in the New York area that are kind of watching and making sure the communities are safe. Are they able to just sort of be on higher alert at that point and just kind of look for suspicious people or suspicious packages? Is that the sort of um, dynamic that happens when you get an alert that there's a hostage situation in a synagogue in another city? Yes, it's that, but it's also deploying police officers, being on the phone uh, with the precinct commanders, with the chiefs to, uh, to coin together, uh, where should they go? How should they do the coverage? Just in the summer, a few months ago, six months ago, Five months ago, the um, there's a synagogue in Queens that an explosive device went off in front of it on a Friday evening, and mm. uh, the chief of community affairs called me on Friday night. That if I see him calling me, I, I answer on Chavez, and he said that an explosive device just went off in front of a synagogue. Thank God, it turned out to not be related to terrorism. It was more of a fight between two people, a wild situation. But just there alone, you look at a situation where you could have multiple devices going off in multiple synagogues. So we'd ask our volunteers and we have the police officers mobilizing to synagogues and every house of worship, churches, mosques, to ensure that 
they're put on alert to look for suspicious packages around their house of worship, every house of worship. And if they do see something, and I'll say this, I know you have a tremendous amount of, uh, of viewers. We have uh, a counterterrorism tip line, the New York City, 888-NYC safe. Anyone sees a suspicious package, whether it's Shabbos during the week, no matter what, I encourage anyone who has information on attaining type of terrorist activity or see anything suspicious about terrorism to call our terrorist terrorist tip line, which is 888-NYC-SAFE. And, you know, while we're sort of on this topic, I'm going to sort of talk more about stereotypes, you know, in the workforce, but we're kind of on the, you know, anti-Semitic attacks now. And I think it's really on everyone's mind. Um, it's on our minds because of uh, what happened a few days ago in Texas, obviously. Um, and I think just sort of in general, um, there's just sort of these continuous attacks. Um, over the summer, obviously, there was a rise in attacks. Um, before the pandemic, we saw there was really a crazy spike in attacks. So um, kind of like, how do you, as someone that's sort of straddling both worlds, your job is to protect people. And you're also, you know, a person that wears this identifiable symbol that draws people to um, really to, to make you into a target, essentially. So um you know, what, what's your take on the, you know, continuing rising uh, attacks that we're seeing um, in the New York area and uh, throughout the world, really? So, of course, first and foremost, uh, the police department's job, like I mentioned, is not just to keep people safe, but to make sure people feel safe. And that's everywhere. We have a large city. We have a large country. Um, we do work with a lot of our federal partners, with the FBI, even, you know, with the Texas situation. I was on the phone with the FBI. On the phone with mayor, the mayor's office, Mayor Eric Adams' office, who's tremendously in the forefront. We need people to understand that if something happens, or even if it's a verbal slur that's made, to call 911, report that to us. We pull, we'll pull video cameras, we'll see about a pattern. It'll help us with that investigation, that investigation that. I'm sure that people may feel shy or timid to make that report, but we encourage everyone to make the phone call. 911, whether it was, God forbid, an assault, whether it was just harassment, which also is not just, but it's something that really can affect someone for a long time. We take it very seriously. So that's why I would ask anyone who is the subject of that, or if anyone knows that someone's the subject of that, to speak to them. And to always encourage, always encourage them to call the police. Let us handle it. Again, we have investigative tools, whether it's video footage, whether it's patterns that we're looking at with people. And we would absolutely work with the district attorneys and our partners in law enforcement to really see whether it's a mental health crisis, whether it's a criminal um, mind to it. But we'll do everything that we can to stop that behavior. If it's one person, if it's a group of people, thank God from what we see with the hate crimes, the vast majority uh, are pro against property, not against the person, but still that's bad enough. Even if it's a swastika on a public tree or a street lamp, still horrific. How much more so if it's done to someone's private property, a garage, a home. So we take everything seriously. We also understand the concept that if a smaller, low, low crime is tolerated, then that generally will absolutely breed to higher crimes. So if someone does a small swastika on a public post, like a lamppost, and that goes without enforcement, unchecked, 
who's to say that person rolls in the future to a bigger swastika on a private home or worse, an attack on a person physically or worse. So that's why we want everything reported. We want to look into everything. And it's partnership with the community. We can't police New York City by ourselves as the police department. We actually need everyone's help. We need people to come to us with as partners and say, hey, this and this is going on. We have a tips line. If anyone has information on crime, we have an 1-800-577-TIPS, a hate crime. Someone knows something, call us, give us that tip. So again, 1-800-577-TIPS, let us investigate it. We take it very seriously and we hope that with the partnership, we continue to drive crime down in New York City and make people feel safe. You know, one thing that um, I've been thinking a lot about is um, in the last year, uh, two of my children, two of my teenage daughters were uh, called out for being Jewish on the street. And as someone who did not grow up observant, did not dress identifiably Jewish and now does and is raising children that do, um, it's a little bit terrifying to, I mean, on one hand, we're so proud to be Jewish. We're so proud to be publicly Jewish. It's nothing that we'd ever want to hide. On the other hand, having one of my daughters called a kike, uh, not too far from home, having another daughter called a Jew with a car driving by, um, you know, out the window um, at a friend's house um, during a holiday this year. Um, it's definitely this feeling of, um, you know, really being just this open target on the street. And I guess what I want to point out is that when I posted both of these incidents on social media, and I think we reported the first one to um, police and the second one we did not. Um, what I was surprised was that there were all these people that were commenting that they get comments every single week walking to shul on Shabbos. Uh, they get comments every single day walking around, you know, uh, in the New York City area. And my sense was that most people were not reporting that. And why does reporting matter in terms of um, just in terms of like statistical trends? Um, like, is that that's something that the police force or the FBI is looking at to kind of get a, a, a sense of is this problem getting worse? Oh, with reporting, I just actually, just before the podcast, I was just on the phone with uh, one of our uh, top clergy liaisons, uh, David Eskiel, does a great job. A lot of times it'll come to a community leader, like a clergy liaison, like somebody of a, of, of a religious stature, a rabbi, a priest, an imam. And we need to hear the information. We need to know what's going on. Because yes, like you said, we will deploy resources, we look at the statistics, and we know where to send our personnel. We do have a limited personnel like everyone else, but we'll know where to send our police officers. We'll know what's going on in a certain area, get our finger on the pulse, like I spoke about before, and see, is it one person committing a thousand crimes? Because it's definitely not a thousand people just committing one crime each. We don't see that. We see very, very few people in the population committing multiple numerous crimes. So a lot of times, if it's someone going around, if it's a swastika, whether it's saying words to cause fear, it's generally not many people doing it to a lot of people. And if we cut the source out, if we get that one or two or a few people and we stop it, a lot of times that will stop the entire panic in the community. Just a quick example, there'll be one person who's responsible for multiple burglaries. We'll arrest that person. We'll see burglaries in that area, in that community, sharply decrease. When that person is getting out of prison, we know to expect that unless we catch them, burglaries will go up again. And we do everything we can, of course, within the law, within the enforcement, it's what we have 
to keep an offender in jail. Of course, we have other resources, other tools besides for jail. We have rehabilitation that we push very much with our district attorney partners and our federal partners. But we see that, again, that just brings home a point. It's one person or just a couple people doing multiple instances of crime. In terms of the piece about not staying in jail, I know this is not your side. This is more of a legislative legislature issue, but um, there is a frustration. I've heard people talk about that someone gets caught and then they're out you know, on bail and a small amount of bail the next day. I mean, that is a little bit of uh, attention here in terms of doing the reporting, finding the perp, and then the person being back on the street very quickly. Yes. Mayor, I'll tell you, I'll say this. Mayor Eric Adams said it beautifully. He spoke about his, his responsibility as mayor of New York City uh, to appoint judges. He, the mayor appoints judges of the criminal court. And the, I've never heard a mayor say this before, how he said that he's taking his responsibility of appointing judges seriously. And mm-hmm. he's about the challenges that the police department has when it comes to law and order, when it comes to the challenges that we have of keeping someone in jail who belongs in jail. We, no one wants anyone in jail who doesn't deserve it. But... Thank God, Baruch Hashem, thank God we have a leader now of New York City, Mayor Eric Adams, who takes public safety very seriously. He used to be a police officer, he was a captain. I know him since he's a captain. And we have mm-hmm. someone right the wrongs that we've seen in the city and the state and the challenges that are given to the police. And I'm definitely optimistic going in the future now. Beautiful. Uh, we have about three minutes left. So I just want to hear now sort of end on a high note. We sort of talked about uh, the fear, the crime. What about sort of community building? What has your job allowed you to do in terms of uh, working with other communities, building bridges with other communities? I saw a beautiful picture of you hugging an imam recently who lost um, congregants from his mosque during uh, the recent Bronx fire. So could you tell us a little bit about what that is like to sort of be publicly, you know, a religious Jew and working with other communities? Absolutely. That morning of the fire, uh, I got a call from uh, Joel Eisbuffer. Uh, and Fred Kreisman, he's the commissioner of the mayor's community affairs unit, uh, knew there's a big blaze going on, displacements, the entire building was, was, uh, was evacuated by the fire department. Horrific scene, horrific scene. The uh, 17 people dead, countless injured, children, kids, families displaced, the tragedy. Uh, working with our partners in the not-for-profits, uh, Joel Eisdorfer, Alex, Alexander Rappaport, Masfia with food, Bob Moskowitz and Shomrim, uh, Mati Brenner, Shomrim, Sri Wild, just having the people, Jack Meyer, Misaskim, to help people in crisis. We got just a few hours into the tragedy. We already had, had, we already had hot food delivered by Misaskim. Shomrim brought it up, set up a table. There's a public school right next to the building that we're able to use the large auditorium of a public school. They're able to get resources, clothing, uh, working with the Red Cross for shelter, going to, there's a mosque two blocks away. That's where the picture was taken. I went to the mosque, which is two blocks away, where a lot of people who were killed in that fire were members of, and the imam just speaking to him, to asking, how can we help bringing food to the mosque, bringing food to the members of the mosque? And yeah, the embrace there was real. It was a real loving hug of humanity, where, where each and every one of us is a person, and that human side of it, to give, to help. How much of a blessing do we have to be a giver? We always have to consider that and appreciate that and use it. We always use our positions to the fullest potential we have. We all have potential. We all have positions we could help. It's just the idea of finding the best and ultimate way of doing so and applying that for the greater good. And that's contagious. They say courtesy is contagious. Giving is contagious. Love is contagious. 
just pushing out the dark. It's like a candle. When one candle is in a room, it has light. That one candle can light a hundred candles. And that one candle that lit the other hundred is not diminished at all. It stays lit just the same. And now it brings more power and more light to the room. And that's the power of power of giving. That's that's love and humanity. That's what I strive for naturally. And that's what I always encourage with my family, with my police officers. And that's the tone of the police department from the top on down. Beautiful. And um, that is truly a Kedisha Shem that is being a light onto the nations. Um, so thank you so much uh, for your service to sort of to the world at large, um, you know, as a, a person that works in that field and also it's really a special service uh, to the Jewish people um, because it is a unique place to be able to shine in that way. Um, and we wish you uh, continued Hatzlacha and all that you do. Thank you so much, Alison. Thank you. Thank you for what you do always. Thank you. And you can catch us same time, same place next week. Bye-bye.